Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. Hello, Carrie. Hi. Uh, Since the last time you've heard us, uh, we've become married. Mm -hmm. And we've also... um, this is the first time we're recording since other people have heard this podcast. That's true, yeah. And we had a we had a deep backlog because we knew the whole wedding thing was going to happen and we didn't want any interruptions, but now it's fresh. Now it's fresh and now we've gotten to see a lot of really nice things people have said, so uh thank you all and yeah, thanks. thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, and, and and please please stay. We'll do better. We'll do better, I promise. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're still we're still doing well, I like to think. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so what are we what are we talking about today, Sean? Yeah, so today we are talking about Professor George Adamski. Mm. Uh, Professor Adamski, as he was known by his followers, uh, claimed to be uh, the very first person in the United States history to have been contacted by extraterrestrials, alien beings from another planet. Yeah, I don't know much about this story. I feel like it's it's kind of a lesser known little nugget of alien history. Um, and I'm kind of going to be learning right along with the audience, I think. So that's pretty exciting. He's great. Because obviously the 19, uh, from the very, very late 40s is, is when kind of the first saucer sightings were reported. And, mm-hmm. and then right through the 50s, there was a craze of you know saucer stories and contact stories and then later abduction stories and as the stakes get raised um adamski's fun because he's kind of right there with them the whole the whole way trying to hang on trying to stay relevant Mm -hmm. and uh uh, trying to trying to stay in the scene i guess yeah absolutely so where do where do we start with adamski where george adamski started was in bromberg prussia oh uh, which was at the time part of the German Empire, because he was born April 17th, 1891. And when he was two years old, his family moved uh, to Dunkirk, just outside of New York City, and he grew up there very, very poor, dirt poor. Dunkirk, New York City. Okay. Um, at age 21, he joined the U.S. Cavalry Regiment and went and fought for two years on the Mexican border. This was during the Pancho Villa expedition. Wow. Uh, we don't have much in the way of knowledge about his service there, just that he just that he served. In 1917, a year after he got back, he got married to a Mary Shimbersky. And uh, after the marriage, uh, they moved west as Adamski, who was not a very well-educated man. Um, was looking for work. So he did uh, maintenance work in Yellowstone for a little while. Uh, He found a job at a flour mill in Oregon. uh, And then he was uh, working at a concrete factory in California. And uh, that's how they kind of spent the next uh, couple of years. Mm -hmm. Until the 1920s brought a fascination with the occult and with spiritual practices uh, into California. Well, that's really when spiritualism was getting really big, was the early 1900s into the 20s. Yeah, exactly. People, mm-hmm. It was very, very cool and trendy to uh, to have a seance or, or whatever. And, and what was also getting big was theosophy, which, for those of you who don't know, is a weird occult modern religion started by some um, thinkers in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Was Madame Blavatsky one of the big... Foremost, yeah. Madame Helena P. Blavatsky. Oh. Who's a fascinating character all on her own. Uh, <laughs> For sure. But certainly the country was still feeling the ripple effects of that. And it was very trendy to be in these kind of um, 
look, theosophy is all about all life and objects and layers of perception in the universe uh, are all reflections of a single universal absolute that everyone is a part of. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anything you kind of do bad to other people, you're also doing to yourself kind of things. I, I think that's a lot of it. It's also kind all... of a karma thing. Yes. Now, uh, is that universal absolute like God or is it the force or? I think yes. Okay. <laughs> It's like the universal godhead, right? But you are, are also it, and I am it. That's what connects all of us, I guess. Yeah, but not even connects, because I think we don't actually exist except as reflections of this thing. <sighs> uh, also, human souls do exist as their own things, but they're reincarnated through a system of karma, kind of like Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And they can eventually achieve emancipation, uh, like nirvana. Oh, okay. So they don't get reincarnated again. No. And there's a lot more and it's all impenetrable. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of the point. Uh, occult stuff is often about, and theosophy certainly is all about this idea of like hidden knowledge that you can better yourself through ancient wisdom that has been uh, passed down to only a select lucky few. And with theosophy, these lucky few are... are uh, called ancient masters of wisdom and uh, madame blavatsky herself uh, claimed to have gotten all the things she wrote in her silly books from uh, ancient masters she met in tibet and later uh, astrally communicated with as you do as you do so these are all ideas that really um entranced george adamski okay he was into all of this stuff and uh he became in the 20s kind of um kind of a minor player in this uh, california occult scene and he uh, he was something of a spiritual leader, or a self-styled spiritual leader anyway. Mm -hmm. He called his personal uh, variant on all this neo-theosophy stuff um, universal progressive Christianity. Oh, okay. So he related it back to Jesus and God and all of that. Yeah, I think Blavatsky might even tie in Christianity in a way uh, by saying that Jesus was one of the ascended masters. Right, and he was also part of the universal force and... Of course he was. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, interesting. So does, is this kind of like a, like a cult or a church, or is this just a, a teaching of his? Is it a it's, Scientology thing? What, what is he doing at this point? He called point? it the universal law, his teachings. He founded what, was, what he called the Royal Order of Tibet mm -hmm. in Laguna Beach, very Tony. <laughs> Uh, in the early 30s, and they had a meeting hall that they called the Sem the Temple of Scientific Philosophy, oh. uh, where Adamski was the chief philosopher. Of course. <laughs> uh, and there he would kind of do a lot of meditating and get psychically channeled wisdom from um, Tibetan masters that he would pass on to his followers. And he had followers. Yes, he did. He had, uh, I, I think, maybe at its peak, a couple dozen people who would come and listen to him talk and stuff. And, and also... Uh, Sort of, I think it was a very touristy scene at the time. So I think there was always a lot of people to hear him talk, even if not all of them stayed and kind of became students. Okay. Was he making money off this enterprise? Like, what is he doing for work? Well, it's funny you say that, Carrie. Um, this was in the uh, early 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s. And uh, interesting timing for Adamski. He got this Royal Order of Tibet... Um, going just after prohibition had been in full swing for a couple of years mm. and he managed to get a um government license to produce wine for religious purposes okay 
Uh, Adamski was quoted by friends as saying, I made enough wine for all of Southern California. I was making a fortune. I could imagine. Yeah, so... uh, Especially California. I mean, that's prime wine country and no one's making wine. Exactly. And so uh, that went very well for George Adamski. And that's, I believe, most of what he was doing for work. You gotta hustle, man. Absolutely. And he took a full advantage. Was he tax exempt? Uh, he was a religious body, so yeah, I think he probably would have been. Jeez. So he's making wine, he's got no taxes, he's living the life. He's living the life until 1933, when oh. the 21st Amendment voids the Volstead Act and ends prohibition. Mm. After that, Adamski allegedly told friends that, um, well, that was when I had to get into all that flying saucer crap. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Later in his life, he said that to well, people. Well, I figure, uh, you know, people are, are getting wine elsewhere. They don't need his probably crappy wine anymore. Um, and so he just immediately goes, aliens. I don't, well, he might have been over, <laughs> he might have been oversimplifying later because that flying saucer crap wouldn't come into Adamski's life until a few years later. In 1940, Adamski and his wife and uh, whatever followers he did have moved to Palomar Mountain in California. Mm-hmm. And they rented some land and um, started a sort of commune there. And they called it Valley Center. Uh, they were just farming, you know, um, studying philosophy. Uh, he's channeling wisdom from Tibetan masters, as you do, mm-hmm. as George Adamski does. <laughs> uh, and just trying to gather some followers and students. Okay. By 1944, there's less than a dozen people there. Oh. Didn't stick, huh? didn't stick and he had also frittered away most of the booze money most of that sacramental wine money had gone down the toilet so things had uh, taken a turn for george adamski in a short time did he use the money on the farmland and all that stuff or i mean maybe was he just dumb with his money it's unclear what is clear is that he didn't have much of it because uh, (laughs) in 1944 alice k wells who was a student of his um who had a lot of money Mm-hmm. bought the group 20 acres at the base of Palomar Mountain so they could stop renting and um, built Adamski and his wife a house and a roadside hamburger stand oh. uh, that they could run and a uh, campground called Palomar Gardens that was open to, to passersby. So there was a new income stream for Adamski and his followers. He got a little little hamburger stand, diner, on the kind of on the side of the road, and uh, a campground. So this is very generous of Alice to do. Oh, Alice. This man inspired such loyalty and devotion in his followers. At this point, he also has um, a secretary named Lucy McGinnis and a uh, a man Friday. I don't know, like a Mm -hmm. like a male assistant named Carol Honey, who um, all three of those will be with him from here till the end of this story. And um uh, Alice K. Wells in particular won't abandon George Adamski till the till he dies. Did she have a thing for him? It has been suggested George Adamski's sexuality is an interesting area that we'll question get into mark. later. Yeah, big question mark. Uh, it's been suggested that he was uh, sleeping with Alice as well as many other men and women in his orbit. So he is kind of an L. Ron Hubbard type. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, he's got all this new age kind of philosophy. Well, hold on. Let's get to the rest of the sure. story. So they're uh, Palomar Gardens. They call this new campground. 
And at the campground and the diner, Adamski would many nights just lecture, just wander into the middle of the restaurant or into a campground and lecture on Eastern philosophy and religion and his new wavy kind of um, new wave, his flock of seagulls music, <laughs> no, his new agey kind of um, Madame Blavatsky stuff late into the night for tourists and followers and uh, whoever else happened to be standing around and listening. And people say, we'll, we'll hear some from George Adamski later, but people say he was an unpolished speaker, but, <laughs> but somehow very, very charismatic. Like, you just wanted to trust this guy. I guess you'd have to be, in a way. You have to be charismatic somehow. Uh, now, he also built a wooden observatory shed at this campground to house a 15-inch uh, telescope that he had managed to purchase at some point. Hmm. Uh, you remember, he was super into the stars, right? Absolutely. His observatory at the bottom of the mountain was not to be confused with the famous Palomar Observatory, which was at the top of the mountain, which was not associated at all with George Adamski. Um, however, visitors would often assume he was an astronomer associated with the right. Palomar <laughs> Observatory. And um, I read that he would disabuse them of this notion, quote, only when he was pressed to do so. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine him kind of piggybacking off of that for sure. Oh, and by the way, continue up the mountain and make sure you go and see the uh, the uh, f main observatory. <laughs> this is just the the satellite <laughs> yeah, ex area. Exactly. Uh, and by at this point, he is always called by his followers and therefore by most of the other people who uh, come by the campground, Professor Adamski. So he wasn't an actual professor. Uh, George Adamski held a third grade education. He had okay. To, his family was, was very poor, and he had to drop right. out of school in the fourth grade. And uh, he actually hated writing and uh, dictated everything to a secretary um, for his whole life. Okay. Very insecure about it, apparently. So that was 1944. This continues on in, in this fashion um, for a while, but he doesn't have a hook. You know what I mean? Theosophy was a hook, and it was trendy for a little while. And Adamski, George doesn't really have that. At well, he point. has he has that, but it's not his original idea. And also it's so I mean, from what you even described, it's so vague and like open ended that it could be anything. I mean, listen, the best cults and religions, they have that that little thing about it that makes it, you know, cool or interesting or different. The most successful offshoot of theosophy in the U.S. was called the I am movement or the I am um, activity or the I am cult, depending on who you talk to. Uh, they're actually still active, but their peak was in 1938 when across the U.S. they had a million followers. Wow. So this this stuff was, it, it was, it was again, incredibly dense and hard to understand, but it, I think that's why it got people because there's this, like Scientology, right? This promise of uh, ascending in levels of knowledge to where you'll be able to understand that. Sure. Theosophy was big in 1938 all over the world, as we know, because uh, a man named Adolf Hitler was a big fan of Blavatsky and all of those ideas. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So... It's tough to dip your toe too far into theosophy uh, or, frankly, into alien conspiracy theory without just, oh, it always turns into Jews, doesn't it? Well, OK, the the conspiracy theories do. You know, you always reach the point of the the anti-Semitic point of no return in which things just are completely batshit and you don't want to put any stock into any part of it because some of it is so rooted in like just this nasty racism and, and things like that so yeah it, it makes it hard to take any of it seriously when so much of it has informed some of the worst ideas and in people yeah it's 
brutal and maybe it's just an insight into like who really wants to buy into these these ideas and stuff people that think they're bigger than life yeah so the saucers would first come into george adamski's life in 1946 specifically october 9th now that night there was a meteor shower and george adamski and some of his friends were at the campground and they claimed that they saw a large cigar shaped well what did they see let's maybe we'll have george adamski tell you himself Oh, is he here? It was something like a dirigible size, but it didn't have a basket on it, which was strange. So we let it go down. But suddenly the thing shot out into outer space, straight up, off we passed, and left the amber trail behind it. Left a trail behind it, just like, hear me out, a meteor. Sure. But going up, one would assume. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of the Goodyear blimp sighting oh. of a few weeks ago <laughs> where people thought that was a UFO. Um, it's just a the very... way he described it, like with with no part on the bottom where obviously there's like that little, just a little, you know, bump or like the passenger cabin or whatever. Um, but again, it's during a meteor shower, so... I don't know how much stock I can put into anything being seen in the sky during a meteor shower. I'm sure there's a lot of weird stuff going on. I guess you'd think so, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he didn't actually... He took a photograph of this, uh, what he described as a large cigar-shaped mothership. Uh, but he never produced it. He just, I guess he just didn't think anyone would be interested. Like he eventually produced it, or...? Well, he produced it in early 1947... Oh. Right after Kenneth Arnold became the first person to report seeing a UFO. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Yeah, Kenneth Arnold was a private pilot who claimed he saw a fleet of crescent-shaped crafts uh, doing coordinated maneuvers over Mount Rainier in Washington. So Damsky was like, I have this thing. It looks nothing like that, but it reminds me. Yeah, and I think I, I don't want to suggest anything but it, he might have been inspired by the fact that kenneth arnold's report caused a huge media firestorm it was picked up by outlets all over the country and people were very excited slash terrified slash titillated by uh, these uh, yeah these flying crescent rolls i mean flying crescent rolls sound delicious so i too would be titillated by that but since this is 46 47 like where do you think this flying saucer popularity came from because this is pre-Roswell, right? Do you think it's something to do with, like, the experimental aircraft being developed in World War II and the public being more knowledgeable about that sort of thing? Or was it the atom bomb, threat of nuclear war? Like, what was it that made this popular? Because I feel like, you know, as you said, before this time, people weren't reporting any sightings or anything like that. Probably wasn't as much in popular literature or movies certainly well what's great about ufos is they can kind of be all things to all people mm -hmm. so depending on what you're afraid of at the time look the first ufo sighting like i said 1947 so we're right after world war ii well this is the first reported sighting in america right yes i mean do you people know might have no people might have seen things before them but they didn't tell anyone or it might have been in Canada or England or whatever. Maybe, yeah. But this is the first one that I know about, 1947. Sure. So it's right after World War II ends. That great threat is kind of in the past. And there's immediately the threat of the Soviet Union, this kind of unknown 
nebulous evil waiting on the horizon, right? Um, and I think people in the U.S. were terrified and then also excited by new ex- changing technology that seemed to be advancing faster and faster every day. That's also scary. Um, yeah, so it can be utopian if you want it to be, the alien thing. It can be uh, anti-war. It can be anti-communist. It can be pro-communist. It could have been as simple as, you know, daydreaming or whatever that this is a flying saucer is better than the possibility that there could be something falling out of the sky and blowing us uh, to kingdom come when it comes to, you know, the threat of the Cold War. A much more real possibility. Mm -hmm. So uh, he publishes his own photograph and immediately starts getting more attention. Uh, and more uh, customers over at the hot dog stand and the little oh, observatory. Is it a hot dog and hamburger stand now? Oh, he's got both. Oh, excuse me, George. He's got both. I'm sorry. Should have mentioned. <laughs> wow, he upgraded. Oh, yeah. No, George, they're doing great now. They're flipping burgers and dogs, and they're thinking about adding a griddle for pancakes. Wow. This I'm making up. <laughs> uh, maybe he was too busy to griddle pancakes, actually, because George was working on a book. Oh. He published his novel, Pioneers of Space, A Trip to the Moon, Mars, and Venus, in 1947. So more shades of L. Ron Hubbard and his sci-fi writings. Uh, yes. And uh, this was, of course, actually ghostwritten by um, Lucy McGinnis, his secretary. Because remember, George could barely write. Yeah, and he would not write. <laughs> yes, refused. So like everything else, he just... Um, said this book to Lucy, (laughs) who had to write it down. Uh, It was very, very hard to find um, because it was this tiny vanity printing thing uh, until like 2009. This guy, uh, Timothy Green Beckley, uh, bought the rights and made it available as a print-on-demand thing. So if anybody wants to read a, by all accounts, torturously written um, kind of pseudo-early sci-fi novel, uh, you can find it. Pioneers of Space, A Trip to the Moon, Mars, and Venus. All right. So is there any um, precursors in this book to things that he would talk about later, possibly? Boy, boy, is that interesting, Caroline. All all I can tell you is this is a book about a person from the moon who uh, whisks the main character, the Earthling, off into space. He sees the far side of the moon, which is actually covered in cities, believe it or not, trees, rivers, the whole thing. Uh, He also sees, as the title implies, Mars and Venus. He meets all the aliens, kind of um, elder space sage yogis. Sure. Uh, Ascended ancient masters, if you will, who are you know, a millennium old and who share many pearls of wisdom and uh, uh, bits of knowledge about the human condition and ways that people should live their lives, all of which sound suspiciously similar to George Adamski's um, universal law uh, things that he was teaching back in the 30s. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's nice that George was so close to the mark as far as the alien... uh... Another coincidence. Yeah, or at least he didn't uh, change his philosophy much between then and now. So that's all. We'll come back to Pioneers of Space, but that's all on that for now. Uh, In 1949, he is, Adamski is, uh, traveling around uh, Southern California and giving UFO lectures for money. Great. Good for him. Finally making a buck off this thing. Um, (laughs) And he's got kind of a stump speech going, a practiced um, list of points he always gets to. And if you go see him at one of these lectures, say at your local Lions Club, He might come through there. They paid him, you know, a couple hundred bucks to come and talk. Uh, He might claim 
the U.S. government had uh, radar tracked a 700-foot-long spacecraft in 1947 on the far side of the moon. Uh, where did he get that information? Oh, he knows all the top people, Carrie. You don't need to worry about that. But he certainly didn't worry about it in his uh, talk. <laughs> he also said that scientists have established that all planets in the solar system are inhabited and that uh, people, the general public, will be finding this out pretty soon. Oh, and uh, also that photos of Mars taken at the Mount Palomar Observatory prove that Martian canals are artificial and built by an intelligence far greater than any on Earth. Wow, must be really nice canals. Right? <laughs> what, what are they, what, what's in these? What could possibly, what could they have looked like? They're just really good canals, Sean. Yeah, but what even makes a good canal as long as it gets water from one place to another? I think the greatest minds on Earth can figure that out. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe there's such a such a good kind of canal that we don't even know about. This whole time he is uh, continuing to take photographs of UFOs, obviously. It's like his main thing. He loves George Adamski taking photographs of UFOs. And he's seeing these UFOs throughout these several years. He's very lucky in that they do seem to come by Palomar Gardens quite a bit. Oh, yes. Very lucky indeed. And he's always ready with his camera, which is convenient. Sure. And of course, not all of these pictures. Some of them are pretty blurry. Some of them you could even say look like somebody th tossed a lamp into the air. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that he's, I mean, if he is actually taking pictures of the night sky and not cough cough a model um you know it is kind of impressive that he's getting anything on the picture because it's hard enough taking a nice picture of the night sky with like your iphone nowadays uh so the fact that he's getting this with like a crappy brownie camera in the 40s is pretty impressive yeah in may 1950 he snapped a photo of some ufos flying in formation that he said he had seen depart the moon oh which side? <laughs> the far side, like they came out of the, the back of it. Of course. He's a big fan of that moon's backside. And over this time, he's also uh, adding some more followers. Oh. Uh, so he already had Alice K. Wells, his ride or die, right? Mm -hmm. Carol Honey, his, uh, his man about town. Uh, and Lucy McGinnis, his girl Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, Alice and Lucy uh, joined him on a trip to the desert to meet two married couples. This was Alfred and Betty Bailey and George Hunt Williamson and his wife, Betty Williamson. Lots of Bettys. This was uh, <laughs> sure the 50s. Yeah. So uh, the Williamsons basically reached out to Adamski to find out about uh, a separate UFO thing that had happened near them. And to hear Adamski talk about it, I think he learned about it from them. But then gave his sort of oh, opinions. Yeah. yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this so impressed uh, Williamson that he picked up, he and his wife picked up and moved out to, uh, uh, remember, it's just a hundred miles away or so, but he moves to Palomar Still. Mountain and uh, says, all right, Adamski, take us out into the desert and let's see some aliens. Wow, he really wanted to see those aliens. Yeah, or maybe just saucers, right? And we need to see these saucers. Jeez. That's kind of fascinating to just pick up your whole life just to maybe see some flying saucers. Yeah. So on November 20th, 1952, Adamski and friends, there's six of them, the, the Baileys, the Williamsons, Alice, Lucy, uh, along with our friend Adamski. Is his wife ever along for the ride? Never. Really? <laughs> they don't seem to have um, 
hung out all that much, really. <laughs> she did live there at Palomar Mountain, but she's not mentioned in any of these stories. Huh. And, well, spoiler alert, she'll pass soon uh, in this in this story. Oh. But it, it, she is still alive in 1952. Um, but it is commented upon by uh, several <laughs> several <laughs> of the authors I read. They do talk about uh, how he didn't seem close with his wife. They had no children. Okay. I mean, lots of people have no children. But... Right. But she's also just not involved in, like, his life's work that much, it seems. Yeah. So he's in the desert with his buds, not his wife. <laughs> not his wife. The Williamsons and the Baileys have come just to see a flying saucer. So you can imagine he's feeling a little bit of pressure to produce here. Sure. They're wandering around, um, and they're worried that maybe maybe they're not going to see anything at all. Adamski might be feeling like a bit of a fool, even. And then, wouldn't you know it, Lucy spots something in the sky. Lucy does. And I'll let Adamski pick up the story uh, from here as to what the group saw next. As though we looked through binoculars and we saw this ship having no wings or appendages of any kind, but it had a red sort of a, a symbol on the back of it, on the top, an orange looking. So immediately thought, well, this must be one of those ships. Immediately thought this must be one of those ships. Sure, why not? He's very good. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, what do you think? It, this this sounds like a pretty similar to the ship he photographed before, right? Yeah. So he said there was some sort of symbol on it. Um. Yeah. On the there was a red symbol on the back and on the top of it. Given that it was in the sky, I don't know how he saw the top of it exactly, unless this yeah a really big symbol. Um, but yeah, he said on the back and the top there was a red symbol, and so he thought, well, this must be one of those ships. And they all saw that. Um, they claimed to, yeah. Sure. Okay. As I'll get, as I'll get to, Adamski demanded written statements signed <laughs> and sworn from all of his new friends about this uh, event. So. Yeah, I demand written, signed, sworn statements from everyone I meet. Yeah, you do that for me every single day. Mm -hmm. Just when you feed the dog. Oh, yep, you saw it. Gotta make sure everything's, you know, legal and kosher. Always get your receipts. Mm -hmm. So this large submarine-shaped shaped craft is hovering. And then um, they said they saw a smaller ship come out of it, they thought. Oh. And then it sort of went over a hill and disappeared. Both ships? The little ship flew over a hill and disappeared. And meanwhile, the mother ship seemed to withdraw and go fly back up into the sky. Go on now. Be free. And Adamski said he had a feeling that this was that the ship was looking for him specifically now by this time he was claiming those psychic channeled wisdom nuggets that come to him were coming not from ancient tibetan masters but from aliens from the planet venus oh, okay so how how did he make that leap how does he know they're from venus Oh, I guess he, well, not from Venus. He believes his psychic guidance is coming from the men in the spacecrafts and not the Tibetan masters of, of uh, Madame Blavatsky. I mean, I guess if you're already believing that you're getting psychic communications from Tibetan masters, uh, believing that you're getting psychic communications from aliens is not much of a jump. So he left his friends. He said, well, guys, why don't you set up the tripod in case the mothership comes back? I left, just left them in the desert. I got to go into the desert. And he walked alone over the over the sand dunes. He can't find the ship. When he walks over the hill, he's almost ready to give up. He's walking for a little while. And then he sees a man standing in the desert off in the distance. 
And the man is uh, next to that little, that same little flying saucer spaceship. And Adamski very hurriedly, he's worried, he says he's worried the saucer is going to disappear. So he takes a picture of the uh, ship, but in a real hurry. So this is one of the blurrier photos. So just the ship, he doesn't get the man in the picture? No, you can't see the man in the picture. Like I said, really quick job <laughs> on the photo. But the pilot of the craft was beckoning to him. Come here. Yeah. <laughs> Come here. Ew. <laughs> he was, according to Adamski, medium height, which is to say about five foot six inches. He looked um, basically like a man. He had suntanned skin, uh, what Adamski described as oriental features, mm-hmm. and blonde hair. And he was wearing red shoes. Ooh, spiffy. And a one-piece garment that was belted at the waist and tight at the ankles, wrists, and uh, throat. So, like, just like a your standard jumpsuit. Yeah, sort of your standard alien guy jumpsuit, certainly. Actually, uh, and interestingly, if you look up Klaatu from uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm-hmm. this is a description of him. <laughs> Interesting. Had that movie come out yet? The year before. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, this pilot gestured for Adamski to approach, and uh, as he got closer, the pilot extended his palms. Uh, just high like, five. Just like yeah, kind of a <laughs> high five. Uh, no, extent. very nice. Yeah, it, it held up his palms, both hands, palms out, and Adamski uh, reached out and took his hand. Oh, bro, you got a high five. You can't you can't go in for a handshake when he's high five. Well, he said the alien w- withdrew his hand. He didn't yeah, I would that. too. That's a weird thing to do when someone wants to high five you. Yeah, like he's so it's up as if in a high five position the way it's been described. And he just tries to take his hand. He like o- comes over the top and tries Ew, to shake it. Weird. You made it weird, George. So finally he figures out what's going on and he presses his palm against uh, this man. This alien well, man. Well, his hand. And uh his palm against the palm. Yeah, when yeah. he said presses it against the man, I was wondering <laughs> what he was pressing against. <laughs> um, and so they get to talking. Uh, do they just stay like that? No, they don't. They, oh, they, they, that would be pretty funny. The hands do stop eventually. Yeah. Um, they get to talking, but here's the thing. This person doesn't seem to speak any English. Mm-hmm. But what Adamski finds is that this guy seems to be putting images and thoughts into Adamski's head. Kind of translating. And if he can focus, he can send images and thoughts back. Hmm. And where that kind of doesn't work, he the, the two of them are both using some primitive hand gesture kind of... A lot of hand work in this one. A lot of, yeah, a lot of space work <laughs> to, uh, to just kind of get ideas across. And it sounds like it was pretty difficult and it made this conversation take a lot longer than it had to. Um, but eventually, uh, Adamski said he wasn't sure how much of it the guy was getting, um, but he pointed to the ship and tried to ask, is this your ship? It's very nice. <laughs> and the man nodded uh, and took him over to see the ship, but he did give George a warning. No touchy. He didn't warn me enough to get close to it. Well, when you get to talking and all excited and don't know nothing. What words to bring forth, or what thought, because millions of them passing through your mind in a time like that, you forget yourself. 
And before I knew, I was partially under the flange of the ship. And that's when my arm got caught, pulled up, and slammed back and paralyzed. Don't touch. And George is like, I gotta touch. He's, I'm gonna touch right now. He's so he's sort of cute. He seems so bamboozled by the presence of this uh, this spaceman. Yeah, who wouldn't be? He's so excited. Adamski later wrote that the, quote, presence of this inhabitant of Venus was like the warm embrace of great love and understanding wisdom. Oh. So that's what he's feeling this whole time as he's flustered nice and like guy. turning around and like knocking an oil can off a shelf or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever earnest like activities he's getting into. Here. <laughs> so his arm is actually like blasted back and paralyzed as he gets too close to this spaceship by, I don't know, the force field or energy field around it. Mm-hmm. And so he said Orthon darts in and grabs him and pulls him away from the ship and saves him just in the nick of time or his whole body would have been destroyed. Oh. Don't know how he knows that. I don't think Orthon said that. That might be his imagination running, <laughs> running <laughs> He away. just gave him the face that was like, eee. Yeah, exactly. And so Orthon uh, pulls him back, cuts his own thumb in the process. And uh, Damsky said they bleed uh, just like we do. Oh, red, that's, red that's blood. very sweet. And Orthon just, he's cool though. He looks at his thumb and he kind of rubs it and the blood stops. And then he reaches out that same hand to Adamski and touches his arm and all the pain in his arm goes away. That's nice. Yeah. George said uh, as of like eight years later, it would still go numb uh, for a couple minutes, a couple times a year. But other than that, it was okay. All right. So it's like, you know, it's an A minus on Orthon's... uh healing powers i guess yeah exactly that's exactly how i would describe it (laughs) so now i've already said i've given you the spoilers carrie i've said the word venus a couple of times sure but george's pressing question is still uh where this guy's from he can't ask him in english and he realizes that even if he thinks the word venus this guy doesn't know the word venus yeah i mean you'd probably have his own name for the planet or whatever so george points at his watch and he does a big circle around it and he goes number one with his finger and he goes mercury <laughs> and then he does i an- would not get planets from that <laughs> then he does another circle around that and he goes two with his fingers venus and then he does another one three with his fingers earth and he points down at his feet earth uh and orthon's like what the... Well, I, apparently, because he had to, he had to repeat this process a few times. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, I imagine getting more and more, um, you know, enthused and irritating as he went along. And uh, well, finally, Orthon did get it. He finally did the same thing, but he stopped at orbit number two, and he pointed to himself and poked into that orbit, which means Venus. So I said Venus again. I said it about three times. So finally, he said, Venus, just as plain as I did. And shortly after that, he took off. <laughs> yeah, I he would was probably too. like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take the watch. I'll take nice watch. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> he didn't take uh, he didn't take the watch. He did. Um, Adamski asked him if he could uh, take a photo of of this man <laughs> who Adamski refers to as Orthon of Venus. And he somehow got that name out of their sign language psychic talking. Yeah, he says he knows Orthon's true Venusian name, but humans, uh, other humans aren't allowed to know it. So 
Oh, that's just for George. So Orthon is what the rest of us get to call him. Okay. But Orthon um, said he couldn't, he didn't want to be photographed. Sorry. It's kind of like how only people who work with Robert De Niro can call him Bob. And yes. the rest of us have to call him Robert. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very much that. And so, and Orthon, uh, you know, no pictures, peace and love. Sure. Um, just like Ringo Starr. <laughs> He's very much like Ringo. But he does offer to take a photographic plate, unused, undeveloped, from George. Which George obliges. Uh, and then um, Orthon then launches into a whole thing about how he's there because the venusians are very nervous about nuclear tests on the earth and how that the earthlings are going to kill themselves and then the, the radiation from the tests will leak into space and can c- contaminate the rest of the solar system i mean he's not wrong and they want to prevent that from happening but after that he uh gets in his ship and he flies away peace yeah and that was uh it just then Adamski's uh, other friends came clambering over the hill. Oh, interesting. Just then. Just then. Wouldn't you know it? Mm-hmm. And luckily, this is the the truest stroke of luck. We, we can agree he's a pretty lucky man, right? Sure. All of these coincidences in uh, George Adamski's life. So many. This might be the luckiest moment of all. George Hunt Williamson's wife, Betty Williamson, happened to have some plaster of Paris with her. Like in her purse? Yeah, and so they they took a quick plaster cast of these uh, footprints that Orthon had left behind in the sand. Because you want casts of these footprints because they were covered in tiny little symbols. No, I'm still shaken. Why why did she have plaster of Paris just on her purse? Well, you never know when you're going to want to make an impression. <laughs> Come on! I love making an impression. Going out to the desert, you got to bring some plaster. That's the... Se- uh, okay, sure. So they make a they make a plaster impression of these boot prints, and they have strange um, like hieroglyphs in them. It's like their version of Adidas, carved into the bottom. Uh, yeah, Adamski claimed these uh, symbols were a message, and when he decoded them, much later he uh, figured just it... do it. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Uh, no, it was another anti-war you know message. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he quickly got written statements from all of his friends who were there today. Signed and sworn. Signed and sworn saying man. they had seen the whole thing from about 200 yards away. So they they were saying that they also saw Orthon and the baby saucer? My impression is that everyone except Alice Wells later told other interviewers that they had seen George Adamski walk over a hill. And a while later he came back. And they made the and they saw the footprints at that time too. Yes. But they the first statements said that they saw everything. Yep. Okay. Sure. Later that same year, now you know we've got some outstanding plates, right? Those are gone. Later that same year, Orthon returns. This time, Adamski is able to get a photograph of the scout craft. Um, and Orthon stills like no pictures, please. Uh, yep, Orthon still won't be photographed. Uh, but in fact, I don't think he even gets out of the ship this time. The it's just ship, a drive-by. The ship hovers, and then when it's gone, the photographic plates were lying on the ground. Oh. Okay. And when they were developed, they had more of the strange hieroglyphic symbols that had been seen in Orthon's footprints. Now, how can... This is a ridiculous question, because I probably know the answer. How 
is George able to translate these? Is it just weird mind pictures he has? Yeah, of course. He's getting psychic transference from Orthon and the Space Brothers. What else is Orthon saying? Like, does he accidentally eavesdrop on him, like going to the bathroom or whatever? Well, we have no idea. If he did, Orthon was very discreet about it. <laughs> he sounds very discreet. Yeah, he's he, he won't have his picture taken. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, Adamski is booked solid for speaking engagements. Now he goes to the press with this. Yeah. Like, hey, I met this guy. Mm-hmm. Offers to do interviews and, and get, tries to get himself signed up for lectures. Again, booked solid for speaking engagements. Hmm. And he always assures his audiences that his, quote, uh, material has all been cleared with the FBI and Air Force Intelligence. Is that how he sounds? No, it's not nearly that much of an accent. But I, <laughs> I, I can't do a slight Polish accent. No, it's either 0% or 100%. Yeah, really all or nothing for me, so I'm, I'm sorry. And does the FBI ever uh, comment on this? <laughs> Ooh, interesting. The FBI um, actually sent three agents to talk to George about this. Oh. They brought along a paper they made him sign saying he understood, quote, the implication of making false claims and that the Bureau doesn't endorse claims of individuals under any circumstances. Oh. Uh, Yeah. Um, So then a few months later, he was doing an interview and he pulled out that same letter as proof that he had been, quote, cleared by the FBI (laughs) and as also kind of a winking um, implication that he was working closely with them still. Well, he did meet some of them. Yeah, so more agents came back and, and took the letter away from him. <laughs> like, okay, no, yeah. enough of that. They said there will there would be legal action if he kept claiming there was government support for his stories. Okay. Or as Adamski said, they want me to keep quiet. <laughs> it's probably more like they want me to keep quiet. Um, so there, this is kind of like a real-life Men in Black situation. Yeah, and uh, one of those, one of those Men in Black was Edward J. Ruppelt, who was the Air Force uh, officer who was in charge of Project Blue Book at the time. Uh, For our listeners who don't know, Project Blue Book was the U.S. government's, like, uh, effort to investigate and, some would say, suppress claims of uh, UFO sightings and things like that. Bit Uh, of the X-Files type of inspiration there. That's right. And they had already gotten their start in 1953. And so... um, as this media buzz was building around Adamski, they sent, uh, well, I guess he sent himself. He was the boss. <laughs> Ruppel went to the restaurant to, you know, just see what was going on out there. And uh, he was just in plain clothes, just a, re- a customer in the place. And he, um... The hamburger stand restaurant? Yes. Ooh. And he said this. The four-stool restaurant with a few tables where Adamski worked as a handyman was crowded when I arrived, and he was circulating around serving beer and picking up empty bottles. There was no doubt as to who he was because his fame had spread to the dozen almost reverently spoken queries. Are you Adamski? He modestly nodded his head. Small questions about the flying saucer photos for sale from convenient racks led to more questions, and before long the good professor had taken a position in the middle of the room and was off and running. In slightly broken English, he told of how he was the son of poor Polish immigrants with hardly any formal education. To look at the man and to listen to his story, you had an immediate urge to believe him. Maybe it was his appearance. He was dressed in well-worn, but neat overalls. He had slightly graying hair and the most honest pair of eyes I've ever seen. Or maybe it was the way he told his story. He spoke softly and naively, 
almost pathetically, giving the impression that most people think I'm crazy, but honestly, I'm not. That was some great character work there, Sean. Ruppelt compared him to P.T. Barnum, a natural-born liar and showman. <laughs> he also kind of gave this weird backhanded compliment of like, he said he was little educated and gosh, I believed him. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't help but believe that he did not have an education. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of his folksy charm, you know? And it attracted a lot of attention, including from this guy named Desmond Leslie, who was, um, first of all, a second cousin of Winston Churchill. Second or third? Mm-hmm. I don't know. British political families are messy. Uh, yeah. And royal families at that. So he uh, he had some family money, but not a lot of it and not a lot of uh, success either. And prior to this, Desmond Leslie had uh, written a uh, written and directed a movie all by himself named uh, called The Stranger at My Door. That movie was, well, it's difficult to find now. It's difficult to say that it was a uh, flop, but I will say that uh, budget constraints became such that he uh, seems to have become an electronic music composer just to do the score himself because he had no other option. Oh, and this is in the 50s? Yeah. So hmm. he actually became something of a pioneer and ended up inventing, during this process, the first multi-track mixer. <laughs> Good for Desmond. Good for, Thank you, Desmond. Good for Desmond. His, <laughs> his house is actually a uh, pretty popular, um, like an almost reverently visited um, sort of destination for uh, guys from, you know, Keith Richards and shit, like visit it and go, oh my God, it's the fucking first thing. It's the first thing. It's the first fucking thing. So. <laughs> So, Desmond Leslie's film career wasn't getting off to a great start, and he needed a hit. He needed a payday. And so, he had already written a manuscript about aliens visiting Earth throughout history uh, that he had based on the story of Atlantis and the lost Lemurio by William Scott Elliot. This is actually a very famous and important theosophy text. Mm-hmm. All comes full circle. Yeah, exactly. So, it, it purports to lay out the foundational root races that all humanity um you know descended from it's like J.R.R. tolkien sure and so he was basically taking those leslie was basically taking those same ideas and just translating that shit right into space yeah okay and he thought george might be able to contribute because of his connections to theosophy and because of the kinds of philosophy that he seemed to be putting into his aliens mouths mm-hmm and so uh, Adamski's super into that. He sent a written account of his meeting with Orthon and a bunch of the saucer photos. And Leslie smashed that up with his manuscript that he'd already written and uh, made that into Flying Saucers Have Landed, which came out in 1953. This is still considered by some to be like a foundational text of both the New Age movement mm. and the alien movement. Nonfiction. Yes. This is his first nonfiction novel. Okay. Uh, and this book made a big splash. It became a bestseller. Oh. And it made both men famous overnight. And it introduced a lot of ideas about UFOs that people still kind of bandy about. So in Flying Saucers have landed uh, both Leslie and Adamski make the argument that Nordic aliens, this is what they'll be called, uh, not by Adamski and Leslie, but later, because um, all of this becomes part of the mythology of alien conspiracy theorists. These... Um, 
flying saucer crafts that he describes, these cigar-shaped crafts that he describes, these um, the clothes that Orthon wears, and the long blonde hair especially. These blonde, handsome, human-looking aliens will become called Nordics and will be uh, uh, one of the kind of more prominent, famous things you know that are talked about over and over again by these um, alien conspiracy people. Now, I can't help but draw the parallel to... Aryan people. Yep. Uh, Aryan, by the way, have a lot of the same uh, features. I think Aryans are also one of the root races, the Blavatsky root races, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so eventually, some more, mixing this more in with Theosophy, other people, not George Adamski, will come to think that all of humanity is descended from the Nords, the Nordic aliens, and that we were like um, certain quote undesirable races are the result of that blood being diluted and polluted with other uh alien races yeah so we're getting closer to that racism anti-semitic point of no return look all adamski's saying is that beautiful blonde six-packed aliens from venus and other nearby planets routinely visit the earth they're really worried that nuclear bomb tests in the earth's atmosphere will kill us and then them okay um, I should mention that this book came right after the first test of a thermonuclear warhead mm-hmm. um, by the United States, obviously. <laughs> sure. Uh, we do it biggest and we do it best. Well, we just, we do it. The book also said these aliens worship a creator of all um, and that it's related to the same thing that we on Earth, uh, most of us seem to worship. Um, but God. Yeah, but that we on Earth know very little about this creator and our understanding of him is, quote, shallow. So because they're an elevated race, they know more about, quote unquote, God. Yeah. Okay. Exactly right. So that's uh, George Adamski. And in 1953, he was on top of the world because of all this. He was on top of the growing UFO community. Mm -hmm. Hottest thing in town. And then... Some other people started writing books that said that they, they had met aliens as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's going to be copycats, right? But then some of these folks started saying they had gotten to take rides in spaceships. And all of a sudden, some of the shine came off George Adamski because he'd only t- talked to the guy. Yeah, he wasn't even allowed close to it. It hurt his arm. It hurt his arm when he tried to get close to it. I mean, what's, what's a guy to do? Mm, Got to call up Orthon and be like, yo. Take me for a ride in your whip, man. Would you like to ride in my beautiful, my beautiful spaceship? Is that a song? Ride in my beautiful balloon. It might be something only Strong Bad sang at uh, a time. (laughs) So anyway, it was clear. What was clear was that George needed to catch a ride on a fucking spaceship. Yeah, to amp it up. And that's where we'll leave him until we come back from this break. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back. When last we left George Adamski, he had been on the top of the UFO world for a couple of years, but he was starting to uh, lose some of his shine because other folks were taking, taking rides with aliens, and, well, George was only talking to him. But all that was about to change because in 1955, he released his follow-up to Flying Saucers Have Landed, Inside the Spaceships. Oh, so they've landed. Now we go inside. Now we go inside. Is this just under his name or is Desmond Leslie involved in this one too? No, this one's just Adamski. There is some question over whether he stole some work from Desmond Leslie in the process. In this book, Adamski recounts his trip aboard a flying saucer organized for him by uh, his uh, old friend Orthon of Venus. And... um, so Orthon's like, you know what? I know at first you couldn't even get close to one of these guys. Now we're making it nice. You can get on it and you can ride around. It's going to be great. Well, it was very painful for him to ride around in it, actually, because the um, the spaceship, his body didn't have time to attune to the spaceship because it was a very brief voyage. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh. Because um, remember, this is almost two years later, and it's the first time Adamski's seen his old friend, Orthon. So let's... Let's get into their reunion. I think this is pretty heartwarming. There he was standing, smiling. And he spoke to me for the first time in English. And I got hurt a little bit because I said, Here, I wasted all this time on the first contact trying to convey my ideas to you, eh? You to me. Why in the world did you speak English there? He's mad at him. <laughs> Um, I, well, I don't know. How would you feel? It's like, he feels like a real... I would feel like, oh, this guy just in the last two years learned a whole language so we can chat. Pretty nice. No, but no, but what here, what Adamski sees is Orthon has been speaking English the whole time. He just, you know, just let him fuck around last time. (laughs) Sounds like an assumption on George's part. Well, this is what Orthon said. He said, now look, there is no telephone system between us and... Your planet. So the only way if I wanted to meet you again would be by an impression. I could impression well enough. Then you'd follow that impression, which you did in this case. So look, dude, I had to test you. I had to see if you were psychic enough to get my psychic messages, man. Mm-hmm. That was all. Okay. And so George grudgingly, <laughs> grudgingly says, all right, I'll, I'll buy that. And uh, he gets on the spaceship. Interestingly, the inside of the uh, small scout saucer, the one from that famous photograph earlier, interestingly, the inside of it looks exactly the same as the spaceship that the main character wrote in in his novel, Pioneers of Space. Mm-hmm. So the, the the description of the interior of the ship is exactly the same hmm. as, as it was in that book. I uh, am completely surprised. He is then taken to see the far side of the moon which you'll be surprised to learn, is uh, covered in cities and trees. I will not be surprised to learn it because we talked about that in the novel earlier. And has rivers. Um, And then he meets the uh, 1,000-year-old elder philosopher of these space people, who's called the Master. And uh, they talk shop for a little while, and uh, the Master teaches Adamski all of the hidden secrets of the universe, but makes him promise to only share some of them with the folks back on Earth. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then they tell him that he's been chosen by these Nordic aliens to bring their message of peace to Earth. But he wasn't the first messenger that they, you know, they've had other ones throughout the years. <laughs> like Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. So he's, he's another coming of Jesus in a way. 
I mean, uh, he's not going to say that. But if Orthon wants to say that or the master wants to say that. I'm not going to tell him no. I mean, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong. Yeah, you know. So um, so, so that's inside the spaceships. And this really uh, uh, helps his reputation kind of kick back up there, kick back up to where it was before. Sure. Riding around the spaceship is the new trend. You got to hop on that bandwagon. Absolutely. So um, as you seem to have noticed, Carrie, uh, there are some similarities to the plot of Pioneers of Space here. Just some. Including uh, the inside of the scout ship, the descriptions of Venus and the moon, and uh, even the meeting with the master. And a lot of the sentiments seem to be cribbed directly from the earlier novel and from Adamski's earlier writings. And again, it's pretty convenient that the aliens' philosophies just line up so exactly with his. Just like Scientology. Yeah. So look, uh, let's get it. What was that philosophy? What did these aliens believe? Well, here's what Adamski said. He said they lived by one law in their society. The golden rule. That planet belongs to the creator and not to man. That man is only be given, given a right to live upon it as a child of the creator. And therefore, all children of the same family should share share life. And that's why they are living that way. So that's the alien society. Pretty close to Christianity. Yeah, sort of like if you were to have a like a commune in the desert in California at the bottom of a mountain and you all kind of um, just farmed and uh, did Eastern philosophy all day. It's kind of that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, sort of. Something like that. <laughs> so yeah, around this time, uh, other people are continuing to jump on board the phenomenon, including people who claim contact not just with aliens. The little gray aliens are becoming popular around this time as well as the tall gray aliens as well. You know, um, but a lot of people claim contact with Nordic tall, you know, tall, humanoid, blonde, handsome men, just like uh, Orthon. Sure, I'm sure a lot of people claim contact with those guys. Uh, these aliens collectively by Damsky and his followers and these other people he writes back and forth with uh, become known as the Space Brothers. And the contactee movement spreads through um, books and lectures and eventually conventions um, start meeting, you know, little convention halls out in the desert where people meet to share their stories. And uh, Why do they have to be in the desert? Is it just because there's less light pollution? Like, what's it with the desert? Well, the biggest one, the biggest ones are usually near places that are known for UFO sightings. And so they tend to be in the desert. You got uh, Roswell. You got, I mean, there's probably, maybe you go up to Washington, there'd be, but you're, you're, you're talking about more remote areas. Mm-hmm. Where people are just naturally seeing the sky better. That's right. Interesting. And where they have less to, less to do besides drugs. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now. Um, so in 1957, that was 55, and Adamski's stars back on top. Um, but there are many in the UFO community, even, who don't really care for him. Um, it seems that science is maybe <clears throat> starting to show things that like, for example, Venus is very probably not uh, able to sustain human life, uh, cause it's really hot there and there's no air and how, uh, you know, maybe, uh, Mars probably can't sustain human life cause there's no air there. And, um, and the moon definitely can't sustain human life cause it's very cold and there's no air <laughs> yeah human life orthon is not human he's beyond human 
yeah, that's a great point. But it's still, it seemed to cast doubt on Adamski's vision of uh, human-like aliens living on every planet in the solar system and um, uh, going back and forth to Earth frequently. Uh, so it's just a lot of uh, the, the other contactee movement people and uh, uh, those who claimed to be abductees um, and just paranormal UFO researchers, which was a burgeoning field. Mm. Um, a lot of these people cast doubt on his claims. And in 1957, Adamski thought he could maybe shut those people up when he received a letter signed R.E. Strait. Yeah, signed Ortho. <laughs> um, no, he'd received plenty of those. They just all came to this mailbox up here. Mm-hmm. Um, so he receives a letter allegedly from an R.E. Straith with the, quote, Cultural Exchange Committee of the U.S. State Department. Um, and this letter tells Adamski that the government knows about his contact of 1952 and highly placed officials plan to publicly corroborate it. Adamski fucking loves this. And he's showing it around. He has it put up in the restaurant, except when he brings it for his speaking engagements. And He's and only got one copy. It. Anyway, it turns out this was a hoax. A ufologist named James Mosley uh, revealed in 1985 that it was all a joke he and a friend had pulled. Aww. So George thought it was real, though. He, well... Maybe. Mosley says that the FBI investigated at the time, but didn't end up pressing any charges. But the FBI definitely informed Adamski it was a fake and, and could he, he was please still... stop showing it. Well, <laughs> but... at that point, you can't go back. And he continued. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. As as more people started poking holes in his story, uh, he, he just needed any claim to legitimacy he could get, mm-hmm. George. Uh, in 1959, the Dutch UFO Society arranged a meeting between him and Queen Juliana of the Netherlands. Oh. Adamski promptly ran out to a British newspaper and told them about it. And as soon as they printed an item laughing about this, uh, the Queen's cabinet and um, advisors begged her to take back the invitation. Um, but she still met with Adamski. She said, um, a hostess cannot slam the door in the face of her guests. That's um, nice. Nice lady, Juliana. Yeah. <laughs> the head of the Dutch Aeronautical Association was at that meeting and he said uh, the Queen had showed an extraordinary interest in the whole subject. Um, whereas the chief of staff of their air force said, uh, that man's a pathological case. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, why not both? Yes. Uh, also in 1959, uh, Soviet probe Luna three took the first photos ever of the moon's far side. And were there rivers and cities and all that stuff? Well, Adamski noted that, uh, obviously these photos had been doctored to hide all the cities, trees, and rivers. And uh, he said that it was obviously the work of, um, and this is, again, lucky timing, Mm -hmm. because the Space Brothers had been beaming him information about this. There was a silence group, all capitals, uh, working against the revelation of the the Space Brothers on Earth. Were the silence group other aliens? Oh, no. These are obviously powerful world bankers, and they... uh, stand to lose a lot if the uh, space brothers share their secrets of free energy and then we move into a scarcity free economy bankers yes bankers and oil tycoons okay yeah the silence group Mm. classic silence group this was seems to have been the first time this came up publicly but it was what adamski was reassuring his followers with any time criticisms came up against him basically his version of the new world order Yes, yes, very much so. And 
in both cases, when you get to the bottom of it, it turns out they're talking maybe about Jews. Yeah, it's not great, Sean. It's not ideal. As of 1960, uh, Ruppelt, the uh, Blue Book guy we quoted earlier, mm-hmm. reported that Adamski seemed to be doing fine. There's another quote from him. The hamburger stand is boarded up and he lives in a big ranch house. He vacations in Mexico and has his own clerical staff. He also reported that two beautiful space women have now entered Adamski's life, an incredibly lovely blonde named Kalna, and the equally beautiful Ilmuth. Ilmuth? Yeah. And the equally beautiful Ilmuth. <laughs> Sounds like a small town in Ohio. Yeah, uh, these were, I guess, just women brought into the country from Soviet states to um, just live with Adamski. None of his followers ever saw where they slept, so you can draw your conclusions. Okay. (laughs) Yikes. In 1961, he had to get another book out there. It had been a couple of years, Mm -hmm. and his star was starting to fall again, despite the couple of uh, Eastern European girlfriends. (laughs) So what, is he piloting the flying saucer now? Well, we had flying saucers have landed. Mm-hmm. We had inside the spaceships. Mm-hmm. In 1961, he publishes Flying Saucers Farewell. Oh, the end of the trilogy. The end of the trilogy, that's right. Uh, and in this one, he mostly outlines the conspiracy of the silence group. <laughs> <laughs> he outlines the conspiracy of the silence group, uh, who he speculates are based in mostly Germany and Switzerland, because that he keenly notices is where all the banks are headquartered. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also explains how and why the Space Brothers have been living among us for centuries and dispels some uh, important myths. Um, it was becoming kind of trendy at this point to suggest that maybe aliens were an extra dimensional um, presence uh, or a psychic presence rather than a physical one or rather than one coming from just a planets in our um, solar system he said that's nonsense these are physical <laughs> these are fucking aliens so don't come at me with that because i think to him that was probably too close to a suggestion that it was in his head <laughs> yeah and he also just uh outlined numerous uh, dozens or hundreds of, of of times that he's he's met um space brothers you know just on earth uh, in various bars and restaurants around California. <laughs> and indeed, his uh, aides said they often saw Adamski when they were, you know, uh, doing speaking engagements or, or whatever. They, he'd stay in hotels, right? Mm-hmm. He would have aides kind of um, stationed outside his door sometimes or staying in adjacent rooms. And um, sure enough, they would see, um, you know, young, handsome, blonde men um, coming back with Adamski from a restaurant or a bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just showing up at the at the room, and uh, Adamski would say, "Oh, these are uh, space brothers," and um, then they would leave a while later. Well, either it's Ilmuth's cousins, or uh, he's got a type. Sometimes they were older men too. Hey, you gotta gotta switch it up. Sometimes you got a little Ilmuth over here. You got a little. Sven over here, why not? Well, he had Alice K. Wells, he had Lucy McGinnis. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm suggesting anything about the honor of those ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was Flying Saucer's Farewell. It's a lot of esoteric 
stuff. And in fact, the reason it was a farewell, he said, was because he was getting out of the flying saucer game uh, because the cosmic, the, the space brothers now just wanted him to focus on getting their message out there. He'd told people enough about the uh, nuts and bolts of the aliens. Now it was Enough with to, the saucers. Now it's time to get the message out and really focus on that philosophy. Sure. Convenient. Yeah. Yeah. So he's done with flying saucers. Um, or is he? Also in 1961, he announced to his followers that, hey, the Space Brothers took me to Venus. Wow. What a finale. Yeah. And uh, he met his wife there. So that was great. His dead wife? Oh, yes. She had died in 1954, but now she was reincarnated. Um, because reincarnation is real, just like in theosophy, but it turns out you are reincarnated, if you're very special, um, on Venus. So his wife, who had seemingly no interest in his work with the extraterrestrials and oh, such. I think that's 100% fair. Yes. Uh, died and was reincarnated as a Venusian extraterrestrial. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's about the size of it. It's kind of ironic. His followers kind of started raising eyebrows at this one. Uh, not... Okay, we're we're fine with the flying saucer. We're fine with Orthon, but your wife? Really? What's even worse is I think he took that trip astrally. So he then had to reveal to them that actually I was in a hotel room the whole time. Yeah, with... Sven and Hans and Ilmuth and all of his bevy of blondes. Um, I believe it was Ilmuth uh, said that one time she hung around. <laughs> she like snuck into his bedroom uh, after he said he was going to be he was waiting for one of the space brothers. Uh, and then she stuck around and he just muttered to himself for three hours. That's even sadder than saying it's space brothers and just banging some blonde guy i know that's when she left well she waited for three hours and she was like you know what now it's a little weird he might be crazy <laughs> so she left his company as well yes they will that was the last straw for her yeah oh awkward but at this point lucy mcginnis and carol honey and alice wells all of his ogs are still with him the williamson's uh, the Williamsons, I think, are out right around this time. Well, they saw what they wanted to see, and now they're done. Yeah. If that wasn't, if the Venus thing, if the astral projecting to Venus wasn't the last straw for the Williamsons, it might have been in 1962 when Adamski announced that he um, was going to attend an interplanetary conference on Saturn. Sure. I mean, he did plenty of planetary conferences on Earth. Why not go to Saturn and mm -hmm. do one? So he went, uh, he went on this trip on March 26th, 1962. Astrally? No. Oh. I'll, I'll tell you all about it. And in fact, he told his uh, followers all about it. And the next afternoon, he told some other followers about it. And some of the followers who were at both, I think Carol and Lucy were both at both of those things. And they asked him, hey, professor, some of the things you said weren't the same as the things you said yesterday about the trip. It didn't say what, but they noticed some inconsistencies. And at that point, um, right around then, George decided that he couldn't tell that story anymore um, because the information was confidential. <laughs> so what instead he was going to do... This was, is why you can't have nice things. Yeah. So instead he was just going to print up two informational booklets to tell people about it. And they were going to be made available to the public for a small fee. And that way the story won't change. And 
here's the thing. It's confidential information, right? You have to be worthy to receive it. For the low, low price of ten fifty. Well, by purchasing it, Carrie, you prove that you believe yourself worthy. And isn't that what really matters? Uh, sure. <laughs> because if you believe it, the cosmic oneness believes it. Yeah, I think that's the central idea of all of George's uh, thoughts and feelings. So he traveled in a massive ship this time that he said was invisible and controlled by the pilot's thoughts that instantly teleports to its destination. So why do you even need a ship? Well, because he did physically go Why is there a pilot? Because there's someone has to run the ship. (sighs) Someone has to do the thoughts. (laughs) Sure. Whatever. So we went to Saturn. Um, There were other Earthlings there, famous ones who he recognized. Like? Oh, he can't say. It's a secret. I want to know who else was there, Sean. Well, the important there's more important things, Carrie, because they were there to discuss how the sun is drifting out of orbit. Mm-hmm. And so all of the uh, wisest men in the universe were there to talk about what to do. And they decided finally, after a long discussion, that if things got really bad, they would just evacuate all the planets and get into deep space. And then they turned to the Earthlings. That's a problem for tomorrow. And then they turned to the Earthlings who were here. And they said, hey, Earthlings, this means you guys should really uh, focus less on war and more on, like, building spaceships. That would be a better use of your resources. I mean, to be honest, that's not wrong. Now, they're throwing <laughs> a lot at him, though. And uh, so thankfully, Adamski has a helmet that they put on him <laughs> as he comes in um, that helps him memorize everything that's said. Sure. And he was able to fully remember it all when he wrote the book, not when he did the the verbal the verbal accounts, of course. Clearly not. Um, in these pamphlets, in Saturn Trip One and Two, the <laughs> creatively named pamphlets about his Saturn trip, um, <laughs> it was a trip, all right. So he gives all, all all that all those those are the events. He also just goes off on a tirade for a little while about how his detractors are all saying the same things about him, even though they live thousands of miles apart. On the globe. And uh, therefore, they're obviously being um, coordinated by some central group. Could it perhaps be the silence group, he asks? Yeah, a bunch of people saying, this guy's crazy is definitely a coordinated conspiracy. For some reason, he also throws in another account of the ancient history of the Earth that directly contradicts what was written in Inside the Spaceships. Well, he has more information now, Sean. <laughs> you know, suffice it to say that things are getting... Um, weird. Things are getting a little weird. Out of hand. And he's losing people. And his mind. Yeah, the, the Williamsons are out. I think I think McGinnis might have been out after that one. Oh. And then uh, also in 1962. I don't know if he was getting desperate. I don't think we can read that into George Adamski. Because we're not him, right? Mm-hmm. All I can tell you is what he did in 1962. And what's that? Several of his co-workers uh, received a message in the mail. His co-workers... Oh, co- he never called these people followers. Oh, I see. They were his, his peers. co-workers. Mm-hmm. Always. So several co-workers get a message in the mail with uh, strange symbols on them. Like the sneaker symbols? exactly like the symbols on Orthon's shoes. Although in this case, helpfully, the translation's just written right underneath in English. Oh, nice. 
nice. Thank you, Orthon. Yeah. Um, and the message says, you do good work. G. Adamski is the only one on Earth, comma, that we support. Postmark Venus. Um, it's funny. I have the postmark here. It sounds like it's from the Space Brothers, presumably, right? Of course. Yeah. And this was postmarked from P.O. Box 885 in Glendale. <laughs> Ooh. Well, they have a P.O. box, John. <laughs> About 112 miles from Palomar. It, I mean, which doesn't tell you anything, really. Uh, but it was also, mm, if you look, it looks a lot like Adamski's handwriting. <laughs> so that's tough. Also, also in 1962, Adamski bought um, a bunch of business cards, a box of business cards to hand out. And I think you'll like these, Carrie. I love a nice business card. So it says, space people need contacts. Can you qualify? Mm-hmm. Uh, in an almost broken English, similar to a, like a Wish uh, <laughs> product description. Uh-huh. And so Adamski bought these to hand out at conventions so he could get, he's losing followers, right? He needs to pick up some more. Mm-hmm. And it says, write for free particulars. Uh, Carrie, could you read the address that you're uh, supposed to check in for? Box 885 Glendale, California. Huh. Doesn't look good. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> People getting this at conventions like, uh, what? What does this even mean? Yeah, what what do I do with the uh, space people Thanks. need space people need contacts? Can you qualify? I don't know. <laughs> do I want to? <laughs> so I don't know. Those are <laughs> It's pretty rough. Those actions are strange and uh, uh frankly hard to account for. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why he did that or what he was thinking. It seems like real desperation. Mm -hmm. In 1963, he took one last world tour uh, doing speaking engagements. He still had, still has fans all over the world, George Adamski. Mm -hmm. So he did one last little world tour and visited the Vatican. He had been saying his whole life that his like dream, his biggest dream was to uh, get a, a meeting with the Pope. Mm -hmm. And here he was in the Vatican and he was standing with uh, a few of his friends and he said to them, oh, there's my man right over there. And he pointed in a direction. And then he walked, he kind of melted into the crowd, they said. Mm -hmm. But he was walking over towards a doorway. And then he was gone. And then he comes back. And he says, I've seen him. I've seen the Pope. Uh, I'm super excited. They go to a restaurant. He doesn't speak at all. They go back to their hotel room. Uh, the next morning, uh, he's much more po uh, talkative. And he produces a uh, small plastic case with a uh, golden medal inside of it. Mm -hmm. He explains that the Pope gave him this special um, medal that's related to aliens somehow. Yeah, it's the Pope Alien Medal, Sean. You haven't heard of that? Right. And it's only then that he's able to explain to them that his um, meeting was to get a, quote, final agreement from the Pope uh, on behalf of Orthon because the Pope had made a principled decision not to communicate directly with the aliens. Um, and also to give him a liquid cure, Orthon had slipped him, that would uh, cure the Pope's gastric enteritis. Because right. the Pope was very sick at the time. This was John the Uh Who died three days later? You done goofed, Orthon. So the, the cure wasn't great from Orthon. <laughs> uh, and also that medal, you can see pictures of it. His followers loved displaying it. Mm -hmm. um, it is 
all but confirmed to be a uh, street souvenir from Italy, complete oh. with complete with the same plastic yeah. clamshell case it came in. Oh, buddy, it's getting sad now. It's tough, and this whole time because um, I think he did pretty well, but I think he also lived pretty large for mm-hmm. a while, mm-hmm. and so I don't think the money from the books stuck around that well. I don't think Adamski was ever rich. I think he was able to live. He wasn't desperately poor like he grew up, but he was able to live simply, I think, and happily, and with friends around um, without working very hard. And what else can we ask for, Sean? For a very long time, uh, but he was working his ass off. At the end of his life, he was uh, 74 years old in 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as he was blowing out his candles, he had just given a, another lecture. Um, he blew out his candles, his birthday candles that day, and there were two left burning on the cake. And Adamski, who had always been very superstitious, looked around at the co-workers who had gathered with him for that occasion. And he said, uh, well, I guess I don't have much time left. And he was certain. That the two candles meant it would only be two days, or two weeks, or two months, until his death. And six days. Who's da- gonna tell him that we got trick candles? And six days later. Oh. Well, two times three, Sean. George Adamski had a heart attack, uh, a massive heart attack. He was taken to the hospital, and um, he died soon after. <sighs> He was, as I said, overworked. He was also a constant smoker and drinker from the time he was a um, cavalry <laughs> for the time he was a, a cavalry soldier, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, so his body just wasn't going to come back. And all things considered, uh, seventy four was probably a fairly good run. Yeah, not terrible for the time. Yeah, as I said, he directed. I would say, in a big way, sort of directed the entire movement of the. Um, ufo craze in the 1950s certainly with the nordic aliens and that whole even, idea even the saucer craft he was the first one hmm. he, he didn't necessarily see a saucer he saw a blimp like object and a cigar shaped object but he called them flying saucers right well the scout ship the scout ship yeah, that, this, that this... popped out of the, the mama ship that was like a, a classic sa- saucer shape yeah this is his most famous photo it's the one that is the cover photo for this um episode actually we'll also post it on the website um that's and all things considered it's uh it's pretty much in focus i mean it's detailed it's better than a bigfoot picture yep that is of course if he was actually taking a picture of the sky so this is the most famous photo yeah and this was 1952 when orthon supposedly returned to bring those photograph plates back but did not leave the vehicle no, he never did. No, he just kind of dropped it out. <laughs> um, but when Orthon returned, that, that photo, which again, that you can see it on the website. And Carrie, you're looking at it here. Uh, what do you think of it? This is generally considered the most compelling thing Adamski ever captured. Uh, it's cool looking. Even at the time, skeptics were trying to figure out w- what it was, you know, and claiming that it was not a flying saucer, in fact. Um, people said lots of things like that. It was a, um, uh, drink bottle cooler mm-hmm. or a lamp. German scientist, Walter Johann Rydell at the time. Um, of course, Rydell High was named for him. <laughs> uh, he said it just looked like a chicken brooder, which is a, a kind of a heat lamp they use in chicken coops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that these three landing struts right here, uh, were light bulbs 
and in fact, he claimed that he could see the GE the GE logo on one of them, which <laughs> I, I can't in, in this photo. But he enhanced um, it, Sean. Yeah, the yeah the Gil Grissom style uh, enhance. <laughs> yeah, but that's Adamski. That's his um, life and legacy. Mm. But I think it's so interesting because it touches on so many things that will probably. Um, get into more on this podcast uh, uh theosophy probably will come up again flying saucers Nord- flying saucers uh nordic aliens um scientology well cults and scientology because th- this is very cult-like as well yeah it doesn't seem as nefarious as a lot of those cults like even you know something like heaven's gate which is very alien based um doesn't seem to have ever hurt anyone uh but i don't know uh just it just got sadder and sadder what do you what do you think his deal was what do i think his deal was i think he was kind of a proto l ron hubbard uh i think he liked getting laid (laughs) well do you think he believed his own spiel or no oh uh, the i think the most um generous i can be to george adamski is that i think he really believed in the philosophy of the earth brothers that he was preaching moon brothers space brothers but he knew it wasn't of the space brothers yes i don't think he believed in the space brothers but i think he really believed in humanity turning away from um you know looming tensions and world wars and thermonuclear tests and turning towards everyone working together to um you know, work toward a brighter future. I think that's something George Adamski thought he could help humanity to work towards. And if it made him a couple of bucks and he didn't have to work too hard. Bonus. Bonus. Yeah, as far as philosophies go, at least that part of it, um, it's not terrible. Now, when you get to the whole silence group and bankers and, oh, is it anti-Semitic? That's where it gets a little problematic. But as far as, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this nuclear war stuff and just be nicer to each other and work towards, like, understanding the universe and stuff. Yeah, that's not a terrible thing. Why does it always get anti-Semitic? Why? I don't know. It's really not necessary. Why does it have to get anti-Semitic? It's really, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um... Adamski also still has plenty of fans who will, to this day, defend that uh, photograph, and the um, they'll even do kind of back handsprings to explain away the fact that obviously no one lives on Venus, right? Um, you don't know that, Sean. But they'll go, actually, if you pay attention, George only ever talked to the aliens about the planets with a number system, and so we don't even know if they knew he was talking about the same Venus We don't even know they were talking about planets. He was just pointing at his watch going, Mars? Saturn? They were like, "Uh, yeah, bro, sure. Mars and Saturn. Okay. Venus. Yes. Whatever you need. (laughs) Yeah, he's still got his his fans who will defend him. You can go to adamskifoundation.com and look at all of their evidence. Hmm. Uh, They're they're still... um, The page seems to have semi-frequent updates even though it looks like it was built on angel fire in 1995 hey the heaven's gate page still has updates still looks like it's from the 90s so what is it about ufo cults i don't know i think once you get in that deep it's hard to not believe in it you know yeah and i also have to thank uh mark hallett 
uh, of both the Swedish UFO organization and Skeptic Report, who um, wrote a book-length, um, just complete uh, rundown of, of all this stuff, a critical appraisal of George Adamski, uh, which he put on the internet just for free. And um, it was a, a huge resource for me. So uh, that was very helpful. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Um, I also want to thank all of the uh, listeners uh, again for um, being here with us. Yeah, I mean, this has been a, a great time and it's fun to just pick and choose these topics that we find fascinating. I mean, I know that you first heard about this guy from a RPG we played. <laughs> um, that's that's another important uh, annotation. Yeah, yeah. G- go find uh, Watch the Skies by Jason Morningstar. It is a parlor LARP. Uh, like Holy a- Pulpit Games. Yeah, like a role-playing game for 10 people where you don't roll dice, you just stand in a room and have a party. Yeah, so you could listen to this episode and then be these people. You could be Alice Wells, you could be Desmond Leslie, you could be Adamski himself. Um, and I- it's a lot of fun, and it, it has a lot of these pieces to it, like the UFO picture, and I think that there's some sort of weird business cards in it and letters and things like that. It was for my birthday that we played it. I was Adamski, and I do definitely remember desperately trying to hold together my reputation as everything was falling apart around me so (laughs) meanwhile uh, i'm the one running the game and i have a styrofoam spray painted ufo on a stick and i just run by with it which is probably similar to what adamski was pulling in real life yeah so it's all very authentic (laughs) watch the skies you guys jason morningstar it's real good it's a lot Um, of fun and we're not being paid to say this no but jason get out of this (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> we love you we love your stuff uh fiasco is my favorite role-playing game let's come back with a segment okay it's a break the truth about the haditha massacre has been covered up but not anymore i know you know what happened they went into houses and killed women and children what are you thinking what a mess U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Very appropriate for our topic at hand, it's Fear of the Final Frontier. In a statement on October 26, 2020, NASA revealed that water has been discovered on the sunlit surface of the moon. NASA's Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA, has confirmed for the first time water on the sunlit surface of the moon. This discovery indicates that water may also be distributed across the lunar surface. Quote, we had indications that H2O, the familiar water we know, might be present on the sunlit side of the moon, said Paul Hertz, director of the Astrophysics Division in the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters in Washington. Now we know it's there. This discovery challenges our understanding of the lunar surface and raises intriguing questions about resources relevant for deep space exploration. Water is a precious commodity in space and is a necessary building block for life as we know it. So if water can survive on the harsh, airless lunar surface where else in space may it exist great question where else might it exist carrie i don't know but it's on it's on the moon that's for sure what did we just find about uh, venus uh there was life 
in in certain forms, uh, microscopic forms in its atmosphere, I believe. All right. So what you're telling me is there are channels on the moon who, who couldn't have been built by an intelligence uh, from Earth. And life on Venus, Sean, it all comes full circle. Well, sounds to me like George Adamski wasn't so crazy after all, was he, Carrie? Sure. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review, review on iTunes. We'll be forever grateful. We will. And um, we're trying to come up with um, you know, just more ways you guys can interact with us. And uh, hopefully you tell us what you like, what you don't like. Um, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch soon. <laughs> Absolutely. But for now, see you next Tuesday. This show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by <laughs> Kyle Ryan. This has been a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.